I want to ask you to uh, define a word for me. Now, I don't want you to define it audibly, but I, just in your own mind, I want you to think, how would I define this particular word? And uh, so I'm going to I'm going to say the word and you think, how would you define that if somebody asked you what it meant? All right. This is the word. The word is apostasy. Apostasy. All right. In your mind, you're thinking of how you would define that to somebody. Right. The word a common everyday word. Right. Something you hear all the time. I'm sure you heard it several times during this week. Do you have a definition in your mind? All right. Now, don't be disappointed if you didn't have, uh, if you don't have a definition, <laughs> because it's not such a common word to the vocabulary of most of us. Uh, and yet, you know that it is one of the greatest dangers facing Christians and churches in our day is apostasy. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines apostasy as, quote, an abandonment of one's religious faith or a falling away. It has the idea of falling away. It is a desertion or a departure from one's faith. Apostasy at its heart denies the fundamental doctrines concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, an apostate is one who, after professing to believe the gospel, turns away from and refutes their profession of faith. They move away from the truth of God's word. That's precisely how the Apostle Paul defines it in his letter to young Pastor Timothy. When in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he refers to those who, quote, fall away from the faith or abandon the faith. The faith refers to the content of divine revelation that constitutes what Christians believe. In other words, it's the teaching of the word of God. This is the faith. And they fall away from the faith, he said. In the book of Jude, he says that he speaks of the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. This is the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. The issue of apostasy was one of Paul's major concerns as he wrote to Pastor Timothy and to the early church. He was very concerned about the issue of apostasy. It has been a major problem since the very beginning of church history. And it is a major and growing problem in our day. In fact, listen to this warning given by Paul in the second book of, uh, to Timothy. Listen to what he says. The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to miss. That is to apostatize, to turn away my ears from the truth and turn my ears. People want their ears to be tickled. That's what Paul said would happen. People want something that will tickle their ears, something they'd like to hear. Uh, that, he said, is what was going to happen. But, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read that he says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And so we as the church need to be aware of the strategies of, of Satan and the enemies of the truth. So... Uh, we are living, I believe, in a day of toleration and tickling of, of, of ears. 
Nevertheless, there is a biblical mandate to deal directly and firmly with false teaching. It's not popular today to deal with false teaching. People say doctrine divides. Don't don't get into doctrine. Well, uh, the Bible over and over again talks about sound doctrine and there's unsound doctrine that is taught. So this morning, we're going to focus on the very detailed analysis of apostasy that we find in 1 Timothy 4. So if you'll open your Bible to 1 Timothy 4, we're continuing on in our our study of 1 Timothy uh, that uh, pastor has been in for some time now. I'd like to have your Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you there, it will be on page uh, 1411. And I'd like you to be at that passage because we're going to look at this verse by verse. 1 Timothy chapter 4. First thing I want you to notice in this passage is the certainty of apostasy. The certainty of apostasy. Notice how he begins verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. In later times. Now usually... Uh, that phrase in the New Testament is used to take, uh, is used to refer from the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, the later times. And evidently, the beginnings of apostasy were already there in, in Paul's day, but the full and tragic culmination will be reached at the closing days of the later times. And I believe we were in the later days of the, la- of the last times. We are in the last days of the last times. And he says it will, it will come. But you know, Paul says it should not be a surprise since our Lord and his apostles, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, notice he says the Spirit, they indicated before they passed off, off the scene that there would be a great departure from the very truth that they had revealed and taught, a departure from the faith. The Lord said there would be, the apostles said there would be, so we shouldn't be surprised. Listen to what Jesus said. This is Jesus' warning. In Matthew 24, he said in the last days, listen, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. That's Jesus' warning. He said in Mark, false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. So we, we should not be surprised, but we should be aware of what is, what is happening. And then the Apostle Paul, when he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, listen to what he said. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert uh, of those men who will enter the church and distort the truth. Paul said it's going to happen. In fact, Paul said when he wrote to the church in Thessalonians, there would be a wholesale departure from the faith. Listen, let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the second coming of Christ, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The Bible says before the coming of Christ, there will be a great falling away from the faith. The Apostle Peter talked about it in 1 Peter 3.3. 3, he says, quote, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. So the fact of the matter is, again and again, the Spirit of God, through the spokesman of God, has emphasized the certainty of apostasy. And the prophecy was already to, beginning to be fulfilled in Paul's day. It has occurred again and again down through the course of church history. There has always been those who apostatize from the faith. But according to the Bible, as Christ returns, 
return draws nearer, history will culminate in what we call the great apostasy when a false world church will come into existence and men will accept the Antichrist rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the ominous words that Jesus spoke in Luke 18.8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a sobering question. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? Indicating there's going to be a great movement away from the word of God. Now, history demonstrates clearly that there is an inherent danger of apostasy for individuals who claim to be Christians, but for universities that claim to be Christian, and even for churches that claim to be Christians. You know that there are ministers who once stood in the pulpit and preached the good news of Jesus Christ. Now they have departed from the faith and preach a different message. They deny that Christ is the only way to heaven and reject the Bible as the inspired word of God. It has happened again and again. Many colleges and universities in our country that were founded for the purpose of teaching the word of God now reject and ridicule the word of God. Let me just illustrate for you. You may not be aware of this. Harvard, in its rules and precepts in 1646, Harvard, it said this, everyone shall consider the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That was a statement in the early founding of Harvard University. Yale, from its beginning in 1701, uh, held to the word of God. In fact, the president back at that time said, Christ is the only way, the true, the living way of access to God. Give up yourselves, therefore, to him with a confidence and the great work of life to be done. That was Yale. How about Columbia University? In 19, uh, opened in 1754, this was part of an advertisement published for that school. Quote, the chief thing that is aimed at in this college is to teach and engage children to know God in Jesus Christ. I could go on and on from Christian univer- universities that were started here in this country for the purpose of preparing men to teach the word of God. If you go there today, they totally reject this book as the word of God. They have apostatized uh, from the word of God. The American landscape is strewn with churches that once proclaimed the gospel of Christ, but who have long since abandoned, I don't know how many people I talked to, that say the church they were going to for some time, they never used the Bible. They didn't even refer to the Bible in their teaching and their preaching. It's amazing how often there is not even a use of the Bible the fact is that all this has happened uh, should appall us and sadness, but it shouldn't surprise us, okay? Because the Spirit of God long ago reminded that it is going to happen. But the question that follows is this. Why is apostasy and false teaching so inevitable? Why? Why does that happen? I remember one of my professors at Moody talking about the schools that have drifted away and apostatized from the Word of God. I remember him saying, it will never happen at Moody. Well, I trust it won't. But it's happened to many schools that at one time were founded on the word of God. Why does this happen? Why have people, schools and churches apostatized? Well, Paul tells us, and I want you to notice the cause of apostasy. Look again at verse 1 and 2. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience and with a branding iron. That is a powerful sentence. 
Paul reveals to us here the cause of apostasy. Did you notice? Its source is Satan. Its source is Satan. Notice what he says. Those that apostatize do so by paying attention to what? Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In other words, many will depart from the truth of God's word and will embrace teaching that has its origin in Satan. That doesn't necessarily mean that all apostates are aware that what they believe is demonic. In fact, as many are not aware of it. That, uh, but that does not change the fact that their error has its roots in the deceitful mind of Satan. Do you know what Jesus said? You shall know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Free from what? Yeah, free from sin and free from the bondage of Satan's deception. The truth sets you free. No wonder Satan hates the truth of God's word and he will do anything he can to twist and distort the word of God. Satan wants to keep men and women in darkness and bondage, and so he tries to keep them from knowing the truth. One writer put it this way, the Holy Spirit leads people into saving truth while the unholy spirits lead them into damning error. That's what it's referring to here. Notice he says it is nothing less than doctrines of demons. No wonder God's word gives strong warnings against exposing ourselves to false doctrine. It's doctrines of demons. Listen to what the apostle John said. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not listen, abide in the teaching of Christ. That is the Bible does not have God. Those who, those who abide in the teaching, uh, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Boy, the Bible gets pretty blunt about this thing. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. It says don't, don't, don't invite him into your house. I've had false teachers come to our door on various occasions. I'm glad to stand at the porch and talk with them. But I don't invite him in to sit down. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, listen, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People are blind. They can't see. They can't understand. Satan is the source of false teaching and apostasy. But he's smart. He's smart. You know, he seldom confronts people directly. And while he's the source of false teaching, notice it says here, his means are men. His means are men. Look at verse 2. It says what? He does it by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. How are people led from the truth into demonic error? How does it happen? It happens by means of hypocritical liars. Hypocritical liars. Boy, I tell you, the Bible can get very, very blunt. Never forget what Jesus said about Satan. Remember this? Jesus said in John 8, 44, listen, there is no truth in him, not an iota of truth in Satan. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you realize, my friend, that if you speak a lie, you are speaking the language of Satan? You know, God hates lying. 
Of course, we don't have a problem with lying in our culture, do we? Satan is a liar. He's the father of all lies. And so he says these false teachers, he calls them liars. Because what they teach is untrue and hypocritical. Because they pretend that it is true and it is not true. It's also important to remember that Satan is a great imitator. He loves to imitate. He's not very original. He has his own ministers. He has his own doctrines. And he seeks to deceive people and lead them astray. Do you remember the first mention of Satan in the Bible? Remember what he was doing? First time he appears in the Bible? He was leading Eve astray. Right? He was deceiving her. What was he doing? How was he leading her astray? He was leading her astray by questioning the truth of God's word. He said to her, has God really said? Did God really say that? You mean you can believe what God said? The very first thing you see Satan doing is questioning the word of God. His tactics haven't changed. In fact, Paul reminds us, listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He said there's a different Jesus, there's a different spirit, and there's a different gospel. It was there in his day, it's here in our day. And then he goes on in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, listen to this. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Satan. They don't come and say, here, this is poison. This will be good for you. And it has a skull and, and crossbones on the bottle. They don't do, it does, Satan doesn't come that way. It says, um, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He comes as an angel of light. It looks so good. It sounds so good. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. You know, some people are shocked uh, that Satan uses professing Christians in the church to accomplish his work, or he may use a professor in a Christian college to accomplish his work. But you need to remember that Satan once tried to use Peter. Remember, (laughs) Jesus said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. He tried to use Peter to lead Jesus on a wrong path. He tried to use Ananias and Sapphira to deceive the church in the book of Acts. Warren Wiersbe puts it well. He says this, these false teachers do not try to build up the church or relate people to the Lord Jesus Christ in a deeper way. That's not their goal. Instead, they want disciples to follow them and join their group and promote their program. I watched last night just for a few minutes on YouTube the presentation of some false teachers. I just, it was amazing to sit there. And, and, and one particular that I was watching is very, very well known, very prominent today. And he's a false teacher. But I sat there and watched it and I thought, boy, it is amazing 
It's amazing how Satan transforms himself into an angel of light and his ministers transform themselves into angels of light. See, there's one major difference between the true church and a religious cult. A true church tries to win commerce to Jesus Christ and build them up spiritually, while a cult proselytizes and steals converts from others and makes them servants of their leaders. They, they attach themselves to the leader, not to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very common thing. But not all false teachers are in cults, let me remind you. Some of them are in churches and pulpits and on TV programs, teaching false doctrines and leading people astray. But how does their conscience let them do this? How how can they do this with their conscience? Notice what it says in verse 2. They have a problem. Notice it says their conscience is seared as with a branding iron. You know what it is to have something cauterized? Something is cauterized? Just as a person's flesh can be cauterized so that it becomes hard and without feeling, the Bible says a person's conscience can be deadened so that it's seared, it's cauterized, it doesn't function, it doesn't bother them. That's what he's saying here. That's a sobering thought to think that my conscience can be seared so that I, it, no longer, it no longer warns me. I finally reach a place where my conscience no longer responds to the voice of God. That, that happens to people. And often an apostate is not just wrong doctrinally, but he's wrong morally. This is true often. It's likely that he changed his teaching so he could continue in sinful living and pacify his conscience. Someone once said, morality determines theology. It's amazing how many people change their theology to fit their morality. Because I don't like what the Bible says. That's a major thing today with the issue of homosexuality. I can't believe the gymnastics people go through to reinterpret the Bible to justify something that the Bible categorically condemns. But people find ways to twist and turn to justify their morality. Do you know how crucial it is to keep a clear conscience and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God? Listen, Paul, in this letter that we're looking at, 1 Timothy, back in chapter 1 said, Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. You do not want to let your conscience become seared. God wants us to live with a clear conscience before him. So in regards to the cause of apostasy, its source is Satan, deceitful spirits. But the means he uses are men, hypocritical, lying men. Now, Paul goes on and tells us a little bit about the creed of apostasy. What do they teach? Uh, It goes without saying that they would teach contrary to the word of God. Someone has said, as the consciences of men become seared and their hearts hardened to the truth, they will clamor towards doctrines that sound nice, but do not have the ring of truth. These doctrines are doctrines of devils that entice the human nature with teachings that deny the true gospel of Christ Jesus. Let me just emphasize that apostasy usually involves moving away from the belief that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and replacing it with some human means of salvation. That's at the basis of apostasy. Moving away from salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. It gets into salvation by works in other areas. And so Paul here mentions two specific doctrines that were already taught in his day. Look at this in verse 3. What are they teaching? 
He says they forbid marriage and they advocate abstaining from foods. Or I like the New Living Translation. They will say it's wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods. These false teachers that were plaguing the church at that time were forerunners of what we call the Gnostics of the second century. Gnosticism taught a false dualism. That is, it taught that the spirit is good, but, but the material is evil. So the body is evil. Everything material is evil is what they taught. Only what is good is the spiritual. The, the material is evil. And, and therefore, any needs uh, or desires that a person's body has are evil. And they should be purged in order to gain access to God. Of course, if the body is evil, you can understand why the Gnostics also denied the true humanity of Christ. See, he couldn't come in a human body. That's evil. Whereas right back here in chapter 3, Pastor Boone, in his last message, you'll notice in verse 16 of chapter 3, it says he was revealed in the what? In the flesh. The word was made flesh. Jesus took on a human body, proving that the body is not evil in and of itself, as they were teaching then. But you can understand why they denied the humanity of Christ. And so Paul says here that they are teaching that the appetites relating to the body are evil and they need to be rooted out, including the desire for sexual intimacy in marriage and for food. Now, you no doubt recognize these teachings. Because what had germinated in Paul's day flourished in later centuries and still in the false religious systems of our day, these things are still here. Do you know any religious system that holds up celibacy as being more spiritual than non-celibacy? I read just a recent news article that told of a major world religious leader who strongly defended celibacy for priests as, quote, a sign of faith in an increasingly secular world. It is not a sign of faith. Never was a sign of faith, never will be a sign of faith. It is a sign of a lack of faith in the word of God. And it is an attempt to merit with God through our own efforts, in this case, celibacy. Do you know any religious systems that hold up abstaining from certain foods as a means of earning merit with God? Have you heard of Ramadan? Ramadan is on right now. It is, it is purely a human attempt to earn merit with God. And that's not the only religion, religion that teaches it. Pastor John MacArthur put it very well. He says, as is typical of satanic deception, both of these teachings contain an element of truth. There's always an element of truth. There's nothing wrong with singleness, and such a state may aid spiritual service. The Apostle Paul talks about that in other parts of the Word of God. There's nothing wrong uh, with fasting. It's an important accompaniment to prayer. The Bible talks about fasting, all right? The, the deception comes in seeing those as essential elements of salvation. The devising of human means of salvation is a hallmark of false religion. In fact, all the religions of the world are based on telling you how you can earn your way into heaven. That's what religion is. Satan loves religion. He loves it. God hates religion. And almost all religions of the world hold to one or both of these practices that are mentioned here as a means of earning merit with God. Others teach that, the, that these practices are the marks of someone who is on a higher spiritual level than anyone else. If I practice celibacy, if I abstain from certain foods, then I'm on a higher spiritual level than others. And most false religions and cults teach that celibacy is a holier state than matrimony. 
Mandatory, mandatory celibacy and abstinence from foods in general is the teaching of demons, the Bible says. It denies the goodness of God's creation, robs him of the glory and praise that's it's due him for his goodness. It also is a denial of God's truth as revealed in his word. You see, mere externalism neither pleases God nor pr- promotes genuine spirituality. All these things are external. Don't change the heart at all. Now, I want to just make clear that the two examples he mentions here, abstaining from marriage and from foods, are just two examples of the kinds of doctrines that apostasy or turning away from God's truth leads to. Just two examples, okay? At the root of it all, as I said before, is salvation by works rather than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the key plumb line. Now, question, how do we correct apostasy? Better yet, how do we avoid apostasy that it says so much about here in the word of God? How do we avoid it? Well, look at verse 3. You'll find the clue right there. Notice the last phrase of verse 3. It speaks of those who believe and know the what? Truth. Those who know and believe the truth. How can we know the truth in a world, in a postmodern world that says there is no such thing as absolute truth? The only way, according to the Bible, to correct or avoid apostasy is to know the truth. There's no other way. And notice verse 6. Pastor Ron is going to deal with this verse next week in more detail, but I want you just to glance at verse 6. Notice what it says. It talks about pointing out these things to the brethren. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. You and I need to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine. How do we avoid falling away from the faith by being constantly nourished on the words of the faith how do we avoid believing doctrines of demons by being constantly nourished on sound doctrine let me ask you my christian friend are you constantly being nourished on the word of god and sound doctrine outside of 30 40 minutes on sunday morning how much are you being nourished on the word of god you know i'm always amazed how many christians can spend 15 to 20 hours watching TV during the week and feel that 30 minutes on a Sunday morning in the Word of God is sufficient. When my thinking, my mind is being molded by a world around me. But I want you to notice here what what the Word of God says about these doctrines of demons that we just looked at. If We have to know the truth is what it says. That's the only way to combat uh, apostasy. What does the Bible say about these two doctrines of demons that are mentioned in verse 3? Notice. Does it make a person holier if they practice certain asceticisms, such as abstinence from marriage and certain foods? Does it make them holier? Absolutely not. Look at verse 3 and 4. God has created marriage and food to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. You see, contrary to the dualistic teaching, matter is not evil in and of itself. Indeed, everything created by God is good. In fact, if you go back and read Genesis 1, I'm teaching Genesis 1 to 11 right now. Tremendous. One of the most important parts of the word of God, portions of the word of God, Genesis 1 through 11. Everything in the Bible 
comes out of Genesis 1 through 11, finds its root there in those chapters. But if you go back and read Genesis 1, the account of creation, you hear a repeated evaluation by God of his creation. He says, it is good. It's good. It's good. According to the word of God, the God-given desire for sexual intimacy and marriage is very good. On the day that God created man and woman, on the sixth day, he created male and female. And you know what he said that day? He said, it's very good. That's the only day he said very good. Other days, it's good. But on the sixth day, man and woman in the marriage relationship, God said, it's very good. Very good what I made. Because you see, the sexual relationship was created by God before the fall, and he calls it very good. He put only one restriction on that sexual relationship. Only one. Marriage between a man and a woman. Only restriction. Marriage between a man. It's not complicated. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. Just one. Marriage between a man and a woman. Hear me. Well, any sexual involvement outside of marriage either prior to or after entering into marriage, is sin and stands condemned by the word of God. Any involvement. Now, is it because God's a cosmic spoil sport? No. (laughs) But because he knows that misuse and distortion of his design of the sexual relationship will ruin our lives. Just look around at our culture. And God doesn't want that to happen to you and to me. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, listen, let marriage be held in honor among all. Is marriage held in honor in the United States? We're trying to redefine it. It says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Yes, God will judge. You know, I often remind people in premarital counseling that Satan hates marriage. Did you know that? Satan hates marriage. He hates it. Why? Because it's intended to picture the relationship between Christ and his church. He hates it. And he'll do anything he can to destroy the marriage relationship. We need to be aware of any religious teaching that tampers with God's institution of marriage. According to the word of God, the God-given desire for food is also very good. It's on the sixth day of creation that God said, listen, in Genesis 1, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Do you ever walk into the grocery store and walk through the fruit and vegetable section of the grocery store and, and have your mind boggled with the, with the variety of colors, shapes, sizes, textures of all the different fruits and vegetables that God created for you and me to enjoy? You know, just walking through the vegetable and fruit section of the grocery store should be a, a cause for worship. I'm not kidding. I say, Lord, I just praise you. You, you. you are a great God. You made all of this for me to enjoy. Who do you think made it? Weiss? <laughs> now, it's interesting. It appears that humans were a vegetarian until after the flood. But immediately after the flood, flood, we read this in Genesis 9. Now God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You can eat animals, too. I give you everything. It's very clear that the Bible teaches that marriage, God made marriage and food for the same reason he made everything else, to give man joy and to bring himself glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, listen, whether you eat or drink, that's pretty basic. (laughs) Or whatever you do, 
do it what? All to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. Are you seeking to glorify God in everything you do each and every day of your life? Now, as we alluded to, man can and does abuse what God has created. Our sinful nature has distorted and twisted the way we use God's good gifts. Adultery and fornication are abuses of the marital sexual relationship. And gluttony is an abuse of the normal appetite for food. And mankind has a tendency to abuse what God made good. But such abuses should categorically be rejected. But notice, look at verse 4. God's good creations themselves are all good and should be received how? With gratitude. Receive with gratitude. How do we receive these gifts from God with gratitude? Well, it tells us, verse 5, it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. This is an interesting verse. Sanctified by the word of God. In other words, in light of the scriptures that we already looked at, we recognize that everything God has given to us is good. Everything he's given is good. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, 17, it said, God originally provides us everything for our enjoyment. It's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Our response should be to express our thankfulness in prayers, our, our, our gratitude in prayers of thankfulness. I don't have time, but do you know that Jesus did this again and again in Scripture? For instance, Matthew fifteen thirty six. he took the seven loaves of the fish, thank God for them, and then he broke them into pieces. Luke twenty two seventeen. he took the cup, when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Again and again, you see Jesus giving thanks. Exactly what it says here. It's it's set apart as we give thanks to God for this provision. You see, the Lord desires that we respond with a grateful heart. When we offer a prayer of thanksgiving before a meal, we are expressing our grateful attitude. The same holds true when we thank the Lord for our health, our family, our church. How many things have you thanked God for today already? How many things do you thank God for today? already as you woke up this morning did you say thank you lord for a new day thank you for the gift of life and breath thank you for your love mercy grace thank you for the lord jesus christ thank you for all your provisions thank you for your word see that's how god wants us to be as christians that thankfulness just flows out of our hearts to him You see, when we are ungrateful, it's more likely we will misuse or even pervert God's gracious provisions. That's what it says in Romans 1. Neither were they thankful. You know that portion in Romans 1? It says they didn't thank God, but they took the things God created and and twisted and distorted them. Notice it says in verse 5 that a, a regular diet of scripture and frequent offerings of prayer will help maintain and promote a grateful heart. And you know what? Those two practices... A diet of scripture and frequent offerings of prayer will help prevent hardening of the arteries. That is a callous condition that leads to apostasy. This is an amazing portion of scripture. And not an easy one to look at or deal with. But here it is. (laughs) This is God's word. This is the most detailed analysis of apostasy, I believe, in the word of God. The falling away from the faith, moving away from the authority of God's word. It's certainty, he tells us, happening throughout church history, culminating in a great apostasy just before Christ's return. 
This portion of God's word, I believe, makes clear that apostasy is an ever-present danger to the church. In fact, one of the responsibilities that God gives to the elders of a church is to protect the church against false teaching. That is one of the major responsibilities God gives to the elders of a church. To make sure that there is no false teaching or moving away from the word of God. Its cause, its cause is very clear. The root cause is Satan. The root cause is Satan, the father of lies, who uses men who are liars with seared consciences to teach doctrines of demons. What is its creed? Its basic essence is that we can earn our salvation by some kind of practice. Apart from faith in Christ, we can earn our salvation by good works. And its correction or cure, there's only one way to correct it. Or one way to avoid it. And that is, Paul says, to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. You know, even the use of the word doctrine sometimes just scares people. We hardly use the word today. Because people say doctrine divides. We 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 don't want to get into that. No. Sound doctrine. We need to know what does the Bible teach. Are you as concerned about nourishing your soul as you are about nourishing your body? I would venture to say that most of us are very concerned about nourishing our body. In fact, we may even had a thought while we're sitting here where we'll go for lunch today. That wouldn't occur in anybody's mind, I know. But you know what Jesus said? Listen, he said, man shall not live by what? Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That means I should be as concerned about feeding my soul as I am about feeding my body. In fact, in the second letter Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It should be the concern of every Christian to learn to handle the word of God. Now, Cedar Crest, as a church, we provide, I believe, three prime opportunities to be nourished on the Word of God. One is the preaching of the Word of God in the worship service. Second is the teaching of the Word of God in the Sunday school class. And third is the sharing of the Word in a life group, in a small group. It really is the desire of the pastoral staff that everybody who's a part of this church family would be involved in all three of those. If my mind is being bombarded all during the week with all things contrary to the word of God, I need to take the opportunities that I have to be nourished in the word of truth, the Bible says. And in a day of increasing apostasy, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. More false teaching as as this coming of Christ draws near. I trust that you and I will take advantage of every opportunity to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine. That's what we need to avoid apostasy. I'm going to ask that we stand and uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, it is sobering to read what your word says about the danger of moving away from the faith. Your word talks about drifting away from the faith. And Lord, we look around and we see schools, we see churches that at one time held to the word of God, but now deny it. And ridicule it. Father, we pray that uh, you would help us as those who 
know and believe the truth, to have a heart desire to be constantly nourished in your word and in the truth. May we be men and women of the word of God. Father, pray that you would help us to make sure that we don't live by bread alone, but that we live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word uh, in a world that has lost its way, that we can believe and know the truth of your word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.